Welcome to the inaugural episode of Governance Hack. I'm Mary Bryson. I acknowledge here that my work today takes place on the unceded traditional ancestral territories of the Musqueam and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. The Unsettling University Governance Project takes on the wicked problem of systemic inequalities in universities generally and leadership in particular. Despite widespread institutional commitments to equity in higher education, leadership is not representative. Merely augmenting numbers in underrepresented groups will only compound current limitations. And let's face it, there are limitations both to academic freedom and to opportunities for minoritized faculty to shape university governance. In today's Governance Hack Dialogue, I'm joined by two unsettling University Governance Project team members. We look at what we know about distortions in representation in university leadership and at what might be useful concepts for thinking through this wicked problem. I'm super excited to have Geneviève Fuji-Johnson with us today. Geneviève is a professor in the Department of Political Science at Simon Fraser University. They're currently working on a book project, which is also a graphic novel, that develops a case for solidaristic scholarship that serves the justice struggles of marginalized communities. Dr. Fuji Johnson has also conducted research on the gender and racialized demographics of those in governance positions in Canadian universities which may serve in helping to identify barriers to the more equitable representation of BIPOC faculty in these positions. So Geneviève, let's get started the conversation with that research on representation and governance in Canadian higher education. In 2020, you and Robert Howsam published a study that creatively documents intersectionally race, gender, and indigeneity and representation and leadership roles. As far as I know, this is the first major study that takes such a granular look at marginalization and representation in Canadian university governance. Could you summarize for our audience your major findings? Thanks so much, Mary. First of all, let me just say how delighted I am to participate in this podcast to really understand this pipeline and ultimately who's in charge uh, in demographic terms of our universities, including knowledge production, we really need to be looking at intersectional categories. So bringing together, for example, gender and racialized categories. So that's just one example of two intersections. Of course, identity is much more complex than that. Uh, And so ideally, we would also bring in uh, ability diversity or status. So our study, uh, which was published in 2020, looked at five uh, different universities in Canada. And again, we started at the departmental level, looking at the demographics of uh, individuals in program chairs, undergraduate program chairs, for example, graduate program chairs, for example, And in particular, we focused on gender expression and racialized identity. And again, we looked at various tiers from the departmental level through associate and assistant deans, through deans, through vice presidents, through ultimately presidents. So that is basically what we focused on in terms of our data, uh, the broad characteristics, the parameters, if you will, of our data collection. In terms of the actual data, we basically collected publicly available headshots, which are very standard, uh, not just within the post-secondary uh, sector, but sort of across the board. Many large organizations will have headshots of their employees and certainly of their central and senior leadership. So we looked at headshots and we also looked at bios and bios are important because increasingly uh, people are are sharing publicly their pronouns 
increasingly people are being explicit about their positionalities. So for example, on my website, you know, I, I make it very clear that I'm a, a Yonsei settler, Japanese Canadian settler. This recognition and acknowledgement of our ancestry of course, is something that we see very frequently amongst Indigenous uh, scholars in the uh, post-secondary context. But I, I just want to come back to the point that you raised that related to our methodology and the steps that we took to ensure that our methodology was robust, because there's quite a bit to say about this. We should know, I think, at this point in time, and certainly academics should know at this point in time, and students should know at this point in time, that in order to understand problems, social problems, environmental problems, biomedical problems, whatever, we need good data. If there's one thing the university, you know, really should be kind of promoting, it's the importance of good data not necessarily quantitative data. Uh, we need a mixture. Super important to understanding basic problems. I know as a racialized woman, I know as a, as a Japanese Canadian woman that racism exists in Canada. I know this firsthand from my own experiences and from the experiences of my family. And I'm not alone. Many, if not most, if not all racialized and minoritized people know that racism exists because they experience it daily. And yet, when you raise issues of racism to people who are racialized as white, who don't necessarily have these same experiences, who don't necessarily have the same knowledge, it's very easy for them to say that racism doesn't exist or it's not as bad as we are claiming it to be. From where I'm standing in terms of wanting to understand how the presence of racism and how racism exists and how it manifests itself and what can be done about it in the post-secondary context, I really wanted the good data. And so before doing this work, I spent a lot of time really obsessively trying to find good data. And by good data, I mean intersectional data. Again, that's not just on gender. Of course, that's very important. But it's not just on to use, you know, official government, Canadian governmental language, not just on visible minorities, but it's bringing together in an intersectional way, important demographics. So I looked very hard for this. And another another aspect I think of good data is data that's collected over the course of time so that you can start seeing like temporal patterns, but also data that is like the demographic data that is pegged to career progress indicators. So that's pegged to indicators that tell us something about equity. And so a lot of universities are doing censuses, um, which, you know, which are, you know, some are better than others. And, you know, many now are including intersectional data. But the census is just really, most often, it's just a, a picture of your, of your, of your group you know, of your community, of your employees, whatever. And a lot of organizations and post-secondary institutions, that's all they're publishing. So this is what the faculty looks like. This is what our student body looks like. Sometimes it's, this is what our student body looks like. And this is what our faculty, like all together, this is what our community looks like. And it's like, yay, that's, that's really interesting. And so uh, I felt it was important to do this work myself, building on the methodology of Melinda Smith. I do think that the gold standard uh, in terms of methodology for getting at demographics and getting the richer, more qualitative data on experiences, I think the gold standard is something like a census that also involves qualitative questions around experience. But that census and survey needs to ensure mechanisms need to be built into or around these tools to ensure a very high response rate. One of the reasons why I think that this is the gold standard, of course, is that then individuals can self-identify. Uh, and so on using my methodology and Melinda's methodology of bios and so on, there is this element of the error is, 
increase. Like we could be mistaken. Now, again, in my study, we took many steps to ensure that we were minimizing error. There's also something to be said about the fact, I think, that both gendering and racialization are social processes that are primarily visual. And so there is, you know, something to be said about that, you know, these social facts and the suitability of our methodology, which was primary visual, primarily visual. Anyway, but I do think that the gold standard is self-identification and then self-expression about one's own experiences within these institutions. All of this is to say that was not available to us, that methodology was not available to us, and the good data was not available to us. So we decided to do this on our own. That the methodology was not available to us for lack of resources, and that the data was not available to, to us for who knows why, um, I think are political issues. They are expressions of power. Uh, again, echoing the work of Melinda Smith, but we're also echoing the work of a 2019 report by Universities Canada that had a very similar finding. Uh, it was not novel that, uh, and this, you know, the statistical significance of this finding was very strong that white men are overrepresented throughout all ranks within the administrative structure of universities. We were able to provide numbers, percentages on racialized and minoritized women and their underrepresentation among deans and senior uh, administrators. The significance, um, I mean, the numbers are you know, relatively small once we start slicing and dicing at this level. But nonetheless, those numbers appeared to be quite significant. And the same is true for racialized and minoritized men at these senior levels. And again, you can triangulate with other studies. I, I would love to, uh, to, to ask you a little bit about uh, what you talk about in your study as uh, systemic discrimination that results in unfair experiential burdens on racialized faculty, especially racialized women, but also non-binary faculty. I know when I came across your study, as a person who at the time was a senior associate dean and somebody who identifies as non-binary, when I looked at the numbers, it was both familiar but also appropriately arresting for me to see, oh, that percentage represents one person in the non-binary associate dean category. That's me, an N of one, one of one. And so I would love to ask you to just speculate for us a little on what you think are the systemic practices or processes that both block marginalized faculty from moving into leadership roles or that we encounter when we're in those roles. It's one thing to know the numbers, but it's quite another to think about, you know, oh, where is this pipeline getting, um, getting blocked up? or even if you get into those roles, uh, what's it like? Yeah, these are great, great questions, uh, Mary. Thank you so much for raising them. And also, let me take the, a second here to thank you publicly for introducing yourself to me, because as we were doing the study, I did think of the one non-binary associate dean a lot. So I was thrilled when you reached out to me. So I thought about you a lot, because I wondered how you seeing the numbers, how that would make you feel, how you would feel about that. Because it's, it's hard and I think it's a burden, uh, at least at the very least, it's an emotional burden, I think, from my own experience, to be the only one. It is. At the time that I encountered your study, and I was just so delighted because, of course, institutions don't collect data on matters which they would rather not have publicly documented. And so there's a very good reason why it is that then those of us who have, I would say, a more activist role are moving this research into the public sphere. So at that time, there was a lot of focus on um, publicness and pronoun usage within conventional institutional EDI practices as necessarily a liberating thing. 
And so I would go to meetings and I would have a variety, you know, the the rainbow of color options. I could have the the purple, perhaps non-binary pronoun name tag. And yet there was no thought as to what the significance of that might be. How would that change my participation in that meeting? Was I really in fact being invited to speak as a non-binary person? And so I think that although the individual ethos of success, the minority person who succeeds despite everything, would suggest that there would be some institutional value placed on uh, a, a marginalized person ascending into a senior leadership position. And yet, of course, that gag order, which is always in place, prevents us from speaking as one. And so there's something paradoxical about that it's not an invitation to inhabit that role right and so your overarching question uh was about systems and i think that's what's going on here that system is particularly in the upper echelons of i would go so far as to say any major institution of social economic or political power remains very much in place so I'm speculating, but I think it's it uh, it's not a you know a, an idea that's super far out there. I also think that the super oppressive system of racism and uh, white supremacy are very much in play as well. And into that mix, we can also throw ableism both in terms of uh, the physical body, but also in terms of neurodiversity as well. So I do think that these oppressive systems are in place. And to the extent that they remain in place, uh, individuals moving into, you know, who have historically been excluded, moving into positions of power, being invited, you know, they're actually, it's a, it's a huge burden to be the only one because you're having constantly... Uh, based on my experiences uh, and observations, you're constantly having to strategize about what to say, what not to say, what to push on, what not to push on. You're, in my case, having lighter skin, being of Japanese-Canadian ancestry, having constantly to navigate expectations that I'm going to be a soft-spoken, you know, very thoughtful, level-headed kind of team player. You know, all of these kind of cult, like associations that are mapped onto quote-unquote model minorities. It's exhausting. It's also really painful when I have spoken up and to experience reactions to me in the form of racialized and probably gendered uh, microaggressions and even worse. I think that, um, that one of the biggest obstacles right now probably is the construct of inclusion. That if we do the obligatory workshop for the search committee on EDI and espouse an approach that is described as inclusive, that if we can point to more of what what are what at the time are considered to be the excluded groups, then we've done our work. Meanwhile, I think it's really interesting that institutions only imitate corporations, institutions of higher education only imitate corporations when it suits them. And so we don't do exit interviews, for example, for people in administrative roles. And yet one of the things I'm seeing is that many intersectionally minoritized faculty who take on leadership roles because they imagine that some of the activism that they were involved in before being in a leadership role would translate into changing the institution, then abruptly end up leaving those positions for a whole variety of reasons. But nobody's actually carrying out exit interviews on the institutional side to find out why. Yeah. And uh, that's, uh, we should do that. <laughs> yeah. We should do that study. That's <laughs> a great right. ton of work. Yeah. And maybe hard to, to hear those stories. When I think about doing that research, there's a part of this that involves encountering, witnessing really difficult narratives, as you were saying, Mary, you know, what was it like 
when you realized that once again you were the only one, not just at the table, but in the table in the study you were the only one. I think that will be involved too, that challenge. How do you do work on something that is so difficult? Exactly. And in my own case, I did two years of advising to the provost's office at my institution on equity, diversity, and inclusion. I wanted to do this study. I wanted to collect this data under that umbrella. I was hoping to have, you know, funds and resources to do this study, but instead I just came up consistently against the slowdown, the pushback. We can't do that because it violates privacy. And I'm like, well, yeah, but this is all publicly available information. And so in my own case, actually what really helped me recover, I mean, that's a strong word. I don't use it lightly. It's true that I was diagnosed and I don't mind if you share this publicly. I was diagnosed with depression toward the end of my two-year stint and went on antidepressants. But one of the things that helped me process my anger and around this was actually doing this study with Robert uh, and Sanjana and, and Kayla and really focusing on the methodology. And uh, that really, really helped me process. And then since then, honestly, I've just decided to not I just don't even do this work anymore uh, mm -hmm. for an institution. I do my own research and my own writing, but I'm done not doing that work anymore. Is that partly because from your point of view, to do it at all ends up either uh, shoring up implausible myths about inclusion for the institution or proving to the institution that that your whatever the adjective might be deployed in my case it could be something like too angry too difficult to do the work at all so that either way you're 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 cleaved into an impossible binary where there's there's not actually a way to do it that's productive is it something like that it is definitely something like that this raises a question, representation matters, and this is an argument we make in the paper. Representation definitely matters. Representation within positions of power definitely matters. If there is a critical mass of similarly minded individuals who you know, come from communities that have historically been marginalized, they can actually make a difference. They can stand together and speak truth to power and make the policy changes uh, and make the procedural changes and demonstrate real leadership, which then ideally filters down through the organization uh, to make real systemic change. So that is possible, I think, but that requires the current, the existing institutional leadership to bring historically marginalized people into these positions and to respect them and to give them the resources and to empower them and to listen to what they have to say. And so for me, in terms of doing this work, I wasn't seeing that leadership. And so what I was seeing was a much more tokenistic approach to bringing in you know, racialized and otherwise minoritized individuals into these positions. People who experience various forms of oppression and whose families have experienced various forms of oppression, we have an understanding of reality that is much more complicated and nuanced and rich in some respects than people who haven't had these experiences. And so People in power have to recognize and embrace that knowledge and harness it for change. So, you know, sometimes I think it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing, but there's no easy way forward. Well, thank you so much for talking to Governance Hack today. This is, a, I think, a really great uh, theme to uh, inform uh, talking with Amy Scott Metcalf. Uh, I think of uh, the work of my uh, brilliant colleague, Amy Scott Metcalf is very firmly anchored to work in about democratic politics and university governance. Uh, 
And so I'm delighted to be talking about this with you today, Amy. Amy is a professor in the Department of Educational Studies at the University of British Columbia. Amy's program of research focuses on academic labor and critical policy studies in higher education in Canada and the North American region. I've recently learned that Dr. Scott Metcalf is also a very talented photographer with a keen interest in visual research methods. So Amy, I would like to invite you into this conversation by asking you about the construct of academic capitalism and collegial governance. So could you tell us what you think matters about academic capitalism for collegial governance? We all think we know what we're talking about when we say collegial governance, but there's no obvious way to think about how we could be working toward or within this system of governance and at the same time, a neoliberal managerialistic university. So tell me about academic capitalism. Well, thank you, Mary, for inviting me to participate in this discussion. Um, I'm joining you today from the eastern coast of what's now known as Vancouver Island on the traditional territory of the Sinemuk First Nation. Um, just as a little bit of background, uh, academic capitalism is a theory that's used in higher education studies a couple decades old, um, and it really derives from neo-Gramscian concepts of hegemony in civil society, where the state as a form of government is involved in power relations with particular groups, um, not including, um, not not only including academics, of course, but other, other groups in society. Um, and it's important to note that, you know, obviously, uh, when we use these European lenses to understand society, it's a, from a particular time and place, right? But for academic capitalism's sake, um, from this neo-Gramscian perspective, the relationship between government and the larger civil society is socioeconomic, not just political and not just economic. Um, and where the academy comes into this is that Gramsci discusses two forms of intellectuals, traditional intellectuals and organic intellectuals. And we don't really need to go into that distinction much here other than to say that academics in, in our present day are not one type of person. There We have many different types of motivations for being an academic. If we're going to talk about anything about collegial governance, I think we have to say that we're not necessarily all on the same page here. What academic Capitalism tries to explain is the rise of what Gramsci called state-sponsored entrepreneurs and how some faculty members seem to embrace the role of organic intellectuals that are operating uh, not in isolation from society or the larger political economy, but as an integral part of the capitalist system. We have a lot of state-sponsored capitalists in our research universities today uh, around the world. And this capitalist system also involves ongoing racialization, ableism, heteronormativity, gendering, um, even though we don't always talk about that in relationship to academic capitalism, but it's true. And academic capitalism and entrepreneurship is rewarded through uh, opportunities policies created uh, to allow for people, academics, to create personal wealth through the creation of academic spin-off companies, patenting, academic research discovery, and competing with other academics for higher salaries and prestige. You know, it's not lost on me that in many uh, community colleges, uh, very few universities or colleges in Canada call themselves community colleges, but we'd still have some systems where there are salary bands and you're in a salary band once you reach that level. And there is not a differential salary between someone in science and someone in literature. But in our research universities, we've refused that because we actually do want competition. We want to be rewarded. So there is something built into that <clears throat> prestige-seeking behavior that is part and parcel today of what it means to be in a research university. This competition that's built in is not only in the individual sense of striving towards career objectives, but also at the institutional level in the emphasis on rankings and other prestige indicators. Collegial governance, on the other hand, as the name might lead you to believe, it's depending on collective decision-making, not just personal decisions, and the participation of faculty in organizational matters. 
in many universities, this form of shared governance is also within this, what's called a bicameral structure. So you might have two bodies, such as the Senate, like a faculty Senate, and something like a board of governors. Um, we tend to sort of think of these as sort of a one side of the fence and the other side of the fence, but that's also not necessarily true. And we might presume that, that there's a unified structure on the position of faculty on the shared governance side. But in reality, there's, like I said, there's many faculty who are aligned with what some might call a neoliberal perspective, um, such as being in favor of market aligned faculty performance incentives, market focused programs with differential tuition or aspects of internationalization that privilege external marketize academic values over intrinsic or local values. So academic capitalism as a value system, uh, it's which is supported by larger inequalities of capitalism in the general society, it really can alter the nature of collegial governance by endorsing an academic culture that rewards faculty who divert their attention towards seeking competitive career incentives and economic gains away from more collegial structures of governance. And so that makes the service work of governance a personal liability. So you don't go into service, such as like serving on Senate, because that's time out of your lab or that's time out away from your company. Some people being the CEO of their own companies. So it actually costs you in many ways. Can I ask you specifically about academic freedom in the sense of its origin? So academic freedom arose as a major uh, underlying idea, if you will, in the university. Let's just say for the sake of argument, 120 years ago, as primarily indexing freedoms for individual speech and for doing research on the topics that you think are important and also the freedom to teach as you see fit. So basically individual freedoms. Meanwhile, there's this huge shift under neoliberal economics towards say contingent faculty, reduced rights for faculty in shared decision-making. In the contemporary context, how do you understand the academic freedom that's available to those faculty who participate in governance? What does that look like? What could it look like? Well, thanks, Mary. I think this is an extremely complicated question. Not your question per se, but the, the conditions of the question are extremely complicated because every institution has their um, own take on it, on what academic freedom looks like. I don't necessarily believe we should have our own take, but there certainly is a set of institutional culture and precedent taking that influences those decisions. There are bodies like the Canadian Association of University Teachers, CAUT, that explicitly describes what we all as Canadian faculty might enjoy as our freedoms, um, including academic freedom. Um, and these vary by country, right? So academic freedom in Canada looks very different from academic freedom in Afghanistan um, and other places, right? In which case there are groups such as the scholars at risk that um, in create investigations of academic freedom violations worldwide. It's a complex terrain, but collegial governance is a right of academic freedom and it may necessitate a critique of a given institution in order to steer it towards a previously agreed upon organizational mission, you know, we have mission statements. It's completely within our right as academics to say, hey, we're not fulfilling our mission when we do these types of activities. This is what we agreed upon. This is what I signed on to as part of my job. Um, to work in this institution. So as faculty members participating in collegial governance, we may speak from our role as academics, not just in our areas of disciplinary expertise. And I think that's incredibly important. We don't have to be an expert in politics to speak about politics. We don't have to be an expert in HR to speak about matters of HR. We don't have to be an expert in financial investments to, you know, for instance, come on this out on the side of divesting from the oil industry for our pensions, that type of thing. So it's not just disciplinary expertise that we may speak from. That's part of what CAUT says is our right as, as academics, and it's part of our role in relation to the governance of our institutions. And yet in our governance activities, uh, we're held by 
uh, norms to do so. Uh, but, uh, you know, if we're, if we own our own spinoff company, you know, that that's going to change how we see the future of the institution. I really don't see how it can, you know, what if our research is funded by a corporation that also wants to do further business with the university, or what if our research is funded by a corporation that wants to do more business with the provincial government. So as as a public entity, for instance, we're not necessarily automatically pure in that sense, right? There's a lot of boundary crossing here. How do we define autonomy within this type of entrepreneurial environment? Who's really an autonomous actor in an institutional setting where there are so much external diversions uh, polls on our attention, agreements, partnerships, and, and the like. As part of our institutionalized philanthropic support of academic research in Canada, with all of its legacies and connections to ongoing economic, political, cultural imperialism, there's still this sense that somehow it, collegial governance is apart from that. But in my way of seeing it, collegial governance is at best still extremely elitist and self aggrandizing at times, right? So what what do we aspire to in these spaces? How much degrees of freedom does academic freedom provide in a completely entrepreneurial, corporatized public space like many of our, our research universities in Canada? And of course, if academic capitalism is predicated and built on practices that reproduce in a very reliable way fundamental inequality, then we have a train wreck that's going to happen if we also have an institutional commitment to diversify leadership, because then you're going to be bringing feminists, racialized people working on anti-racism, decolonizing indigenous folks coming into leadership roles who have a great deal of skill and track record when it comes to pulling apart inequality systemically. And so you have a train wreck that is happening every day, unanticipated by the institution in any public way, where there's an assumption that temporarily those people will set aside many of their freedoms. And so I'm always interested in where institutions are silent, because those silences speak so loudly. So I was interested to see that on the website of UBC's advisor to the provost on academic freedom, we find the following statement, and I'm quoting from that page. Depending upon one's level of responsibility in the organization, this is for faculty and leadership roles, academic freedom may be more limited. And you can almost hear the dot, dot, dot. Senior administrators, when acting in their official capacity, are held to a different standard insofar as they must uphold and implement policies and procedures of the institution. So we might think of the bicameral system, or we might also think of the third leg of the stool, the faculty association or the union, as playing a major role in amplifying and safeguarding collegial governance it seems to me we haven't thought enough about the role minoritized people in leadership roles might play. And I wonder what you have to say about that. Well, I completely agree with you in the sense that this is this is the question, I think. Um, do we bring more people into harm's way as as we you know expand what it means uh, to be an academic leader? And so if we take the case of deans, for example, which are very powerful within the BC system in terms of uh, the University Act and the Colleges and Universities Act, um, which is not so much the case necessarily in other provinces in Canada, but you know, um, each of us has our own provincial legislation. So if we take the case of deans, we can see that the political position of a of faculty in these leadership roles might be called into question. So by a, a variety of external stakeholders, and here I just want to put a footnote that I am appalled by some of the things that I've read recently about academic deans in the United States being so completely persecuted, completely doxxed because of what I would consider to be not even uh, controversial statements of, um, you know, we do teach these things in our institution. We do have this curriculum in our in our um, colleges. So we're not in that uh, category in Canada quite yet, but I it's because of the politicized nature 
of many of our governing boards, it is only, I wouldn't say it's a matter of time, but I would say it's a matter of public will. So if the public will changes, the structures are not in place to prevent it from happening. So in an increasingly marketizing corporatized university that has out prioritized outside interest, and to some extent we might say, well, that's what a public institution does. We prioritize the needs of the public. But the public is a broad name, and it also has, in in many uh, provinces, such as BC, it has disproportionately included private public interests, so industrial public interests. So in that context, deans are incredibly scrutinized. This happens even before a dean becomes a dean. Before a dean is appointed, um, the search process may include a private search firm that has a particular understanding of the skills and experience that a dean should possess. Where they get that skills and experience, it's hard to say, and how that's measured, but these search firms are not necessarily only looking at a particular local context. They're looking nationally, internationally, so there's a homogenization of those potential skills and uh, expertise, which we may completely disagree with, right? We may say, no, actually, what we need is someone who understands this place, And our conditions of academic labor, our conditions of what is necessary for research in our communities, our relationships and our relational responsibilities. Just by hiring an academic search search term that may or may not fully get that, we're already kind of off to a bad start, in my opinion. So we might think then that, and some people will argue that, that upper level administrators because they do come from the ranks of faculty and they've just decided to go in this track that we should think of them then as uh, deriving their experiences from their years as rank and file faculty. And so they're not that different and they're not necessarily a separate managerial class. And so the clause that you described from UBC then is saying that, you know, they're going to be not necessarily protected in the same way from the academic freedom because they're going to be, uh, you know, charged with carrying out the, the policies of the institution. I think the only reason people will ever agree to that is because they think, well, you know, they actually are faculty. And so how different could that job actually be, right? It's not like they're becoming a new person once they step over that line, right? But I want to point to the what we might call the so-called successes of white liberal feminism, where equality narratives did not necessarily translate into confronting the status quo. So we might have, yes, a more so-called diverse academic leadership, you know, in previous years. And yet what really changed, right? Like what really changed? People, like I said, can have built a career on some of the same practices that the institution really, really rewards. What happens when someone who wants to move into academic administration from what we might call a counter-hegemonic perspective or a counter-narrative against this corporatized grain of the institution, then the extension of academic freedom to deans and other academic administrators may be needed, right, to support those who might critique the institution in their efforts to perform a type of academic leadership that is not always in line with the institution's agenda. So I think that phrase that you described, Mary, in uh, UBC's language, which may be similar to many other institutions, is the point at which uh, we really have to question, like, why couldn't someone say, I'm not going to uphold the university's policies and practices as I see fit as the dean? Like, why couldn't they do that? And this is more of an observation than a question, but whereas the American Association of University Professors has taken a very public role and has developed a lot of public materials on the consequences of the doxing and the public harassment and surveillance of marginalized people in leadership roles, our own faculty association dare I say, as well as the Canadian Association of University Teachers has fundamentally been mute when it comes to the consequences and the reality of that public scrutiny. And let's be clear, when we're talking about doxing, we're talking about forms of public violence enacted against minoritized people in leadership roles that are essentially impossible to sustain over time intrusive, incredibly traumatic, 
And yet it's not only the university that has nothing to say. After all, you might be an excluded member and have no rights. But it's also interesting to me that organizations that might have something to say about this, in my experience, don't. And so minority people disappear from leadership roles and nothing is said about that. We carry on, we have another search, we do another workshop on EDI and leadership and we carry on as if everything was fine when it's absolutely not. And so my last question is a question that's actually for either or both of you, Geneviève or Amy, and that is to say precisely if it's the case that faculty with life experience, political expertise as an activist confronting inequality, if it's in fact impossible to uphold and implement many colonialist policies and practices in the university, given the EDI commitments of all of our Canadian public universities, with respect to Indigenous, racialized women, people with disabilities, queer and trans people in leadership roles, what kind of specific limits to freedoms, academic and otherwise, would you expect minority faculty to encounter in these leadership roles? What is the problem that the institution needs to encounter here? Well, for one, I can say that we can't have a governance hack, as we've described it, without mm -hmm. having a university hack. So you, you have to hack higher education first. You can't expect the individuals who are placed in these roles to do it on their own. That's, um, that is a form of violence itself. So when we think we're trying to actually save the institution, that's part of the problem. Canadian higher education is explicitly, particularly out here, you know, in so-called Western Canada, it's a form of settler placemaking. We are not innocent. We were, we continue to extract value from Indigenous territories uh, to the detriment of Indigenous peoples and to the land itself. We are involved in a, a, a set of um, complicities with government about upholding particular industries with long histories of mineral rights exploration, logging, you know, even forms of tourism, right, that are not necessarily, uh, or, or we could say, you know, property management, right? So we, we are now universities that endorse publicly property management of a particular type, land capitalism. So this erosion of collegial governance may be happening with regard to uh, an upsurging managerial control or whatever you might want to say, but collegial governance itself is complicit and it always has been and it continues to be collegial through exclusionary, exploitative and extractionist means. And so, you know, just in expanding the, the membership of that collegium of, you know, extractive capitalists is not the answer, right? It's, it, it can't be. So that's where I think we have to recognize that, sure, we have faculty associations and other unions, but um, these may not be culturally safe. They may not have long histories of supporting um, individuals from um, equity-seeking and uh, groups and um, equity-deserving groups. So, you know, equity-deserving and equity-affirming faculty members should not only think about reasserting academic freedom in this sort of face of all these potential, um, you know, really, really harmful personal risks, but that the institutions themselves and all of us as part of them have to recognize and take responsibility to somehow undo or recognize these colonial reward systems. And that is really remaking the academic profession itself. Thanks, Amy. Geneviève? Well, I, I do want to say that it's been really, really wonderful. And Amy, I really uh, appreciate your analysis and really bringing into focus the role of, of capitalism, which feeds colonialism and ongoing colonialism and centering the role of universities in, in these processes, you know, land management and resource extraction. I think that's a really, really important part of the conversation of systems, systems of oppression that in many respects give rise to or gave rise to the modern university and are certainly entrenched within and have always been entrenched within universities, I think. So it's a really rich conversation. And while I want to end on a really positive note, 
the academic in me, the thinker in me, I'm like excited by the conversation and thank you for your analysis. Someone who's, you know, just wanting to get on with life and so on. The systems talk, it's just at some point it becomes overwhelming and I'm not sure how we get through it. And you're writing this amazing book, which as I understand it, includes a graphic novel or significant graphic methods. Amy's work includes these, again, extraordinary visual methods in terms of photography. And so somehow it seems really critical for me to notice that we find ways to continue to witness these extraordinarily aversive and difficult places where we work and to document what happens there, what happens in the other worlds where we do our research in such a way as to change the world at the same time as of course noticing when we need to do self-care because the cost can be incredibly high. So I just want to thank you for the amazing work that you do and for this conversation today. Thank you. We've been speaking today with Dr. Geneviève Foudy-Johnson and Dr. Amy Scott Metcalf. To find out more about their work, you can look up Dr. Foudy-Johnson at SFU and Dr. Scott Metcalf at UBC. Governance Hack is a forum for dialogue curated by the Unsettling University Governance Project, an interdisciplinary team of minoritized faculty members with deep leadership experience. This podcast series is made possible with the Public Humanities Hub Research Grant from UBC and produced on the unceded and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil First Nations, where we're grateful to be able to do this work. To learn more about the Unsettling University Governance Project, please visit us online. To listen to new episodes of Governance Hack, please subscribe on the link below. Heartfelt thanks to our team, faculty, family, and the many volunteers and students who care about the future of our institutions and our marginalized communities. Thanks for listening. I'm Mary Bryson. <laughs>